Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of School Safety Today, a Raptor Technologies podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you tuning in to another important conversation as we continue with our podcast to explore major trends, technologies, methods for success, and the changing ecosystem of school safety. As we explore today's uh, conversation and sit down with our guest to pick his brain. I want to make sure that you are getting all the Raptor Tech content and information you need to settle in and enjoy the conversation. So make sure you're heading to our website, raptortech.com. Again, that's raptortech.com. There you'll find more episodes of the show as well as articles, videos, blogs, and other research content as well. You can also subscribe to uh, School Safety Today on Apple Podcasts and Spotify just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So on today's episode of the show, we're gonna be doing a deep dive into an important organization and a set of guidelines that have set a national standard and helped create a path for actionable school safety strategies. And that would be PASS, the Partner Alliance for Safer Schools. So PASS was developed in 2013 on the heels of the tragic Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Uh, after the shooting, two organizations, the Security Industry Association and the National Systems Contractors Association, so the SIA and the NSCA, they collaborated to form PASS as a volunteer organization with a singular focus to provide school administrators, school boards, and public safety officials with concrete roadmaps and guidelines for implementing a layered, a thoughtful, and a tiered approach to enhancing the safety and security of their school environments. And the past guidelines have been so widely accepted now that even schoolsafety.gov, the federal government's school safety website, has passed as a recommended source and resource for developing and implementing useful plans for school safety and physical security in schools. So what we wanna do is with that as context, pose some major questions here, right? What has made this alliance and their guidelines so actionable for the K through 12 space? What's really working and why? How can administrators, districts, and even teachers take advantage of these resources to consistently improve their approach to school safety uh, and their tactics as well? And how is PASS working to stay connected with education professionals to offer the timeliest and the most effective strategies possible for the current environment of school safety? Well, for insights today, we're actually joined by leadership at PASS itself. I want to give a warm welcome to Mr. Mark Williams. He's board chairman of the Partner Alliance for Safer Schools. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Daniel, how are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you again taking some time to walk us through what kind of impact PASS is making on the larger education space. So thank you again for your time. What I want to do before we get into the main topic is open the floor to learn a little bit more about your background. So if you don't mind giving us that elevator pitch on your journey through the education space and how you landed as board chairman of the Partner Alliance for Safer Schools and how your career informs your perspective today as a leadership at PASS. Sure. Well, Daniel, first of all, thank you uh, for having me and thanks to Raptor for, for sponsoring this event. Um, we're, we're proud to have them as a partner. Um, I spent about 30 years in the security and safety industry, um, 
prior to getting involved with PASS. And actually, I, I got involved with PASS about three years before I retired um, through the company that I was working for. But uh, my, my experience in, in uh, the safe school environment started back in 1988 when I, I did my first uh, safe school survey. Um, and uh, the, the problem we were trying to solve back in 1988 was how to keep kids from sneaking into the gym on the weekend. So uh, things have, have changed uh, pretty significantly since then. But uh, throughout my 30-year career, I, I worked in a number of different roles, uh, calling on schools, working with schools, teaching building codes and life safety and fire codes, uh, as well as doing consulting with architects and, and schools around standards uh, in, in their safety and security environments. And then since you've been at PASS, uh, give us sort of your uh, you know, game plan for how the school safety environment has changed, what some of the key motivators are today that are uh, influencing your work, and then we'll get a little bit more specific on PASS's initiatives and guidelines itself. Sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned back in 1988, our challenge was trying to keep kids from sneaking into the gym. Um, you know, when when we look at 30 years ago, you know, pre pre Columbine, schools were pretty much open. Um, you know, you 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 could walk in any door at any time. Um, no one really knew who was in the building, um, and there there really wasn't wasn't a lot of control around that. So it was a it was a pretty um, you know, we talk about the balance between safety uh, and security and convenience. You know, it was pretty convenient to get into a school. You walked in the closest door to the parking lot and, or wherever your parents dropped you off and, and you went into the school. Um, you know, post-Columbine has, has changed things quite a bit, you know, where we want to know who's in the school. You know, visitor management programs uh, and software uh, help us control uh, those things. And, and there's just a lot more processes and procedures around, you know, how people come onto our, uh, our school properties and, and uh, you know, how, the, how they get into our buildings. Well, I appreciate the context there. And yes, like you mentioned there, the scope of school safety continues to evolve. And, you know, even two years ago, the concept of school safety, uh, you know, including pandemic preparedness seemed unneeded, right? But now it's a priority in front of mind. So to your point, that field is constantly evolving. And that's why PASS, I think, has proven so effective is because of y'all's ability to uh, provide actionable resources and a perspective on school safety that stays up to date on current needs and trends. So uh, I want to go ahead and dig a little bit deeper into PASS. So let's begin by highlighting uh, PASS school safety and security guidelines. Uh, and what sort of impact they have on the environment um, of you know, school safety naturally. Let's go ahead and break down these guidelines, uh, how they came to be, who they're for, right? And um, what the purpose of them really is in practice. Sure. Um, you, you, you gave a pretty good uh, intro about kind of where we came from with the, uh, the SIA, Security Industry Association and National Systems Contractors Association on the heels of Sandy Hook, but uh, you know the, those organizations were being inundated with questions after Sandy Hook about um, you know what schools wanted to know, what should we do, you know what are our options, you know how do we prioritize, 
And that's exactly, you know, what the guidelines and the checklist tools uh, from PASS were uh, designed to answer those questions. So, um, you know, it's basically the guidelines are our are, are roadmap of proven practices, you know, that have already been successfully implemented by other schools. Uh, they're organized in a way that that helps schools implement them across their entire district in a layered and tiered approach, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we developed them to, to help schools navigate that complexity of, of developing, you know, comprehensive and unified systems across their school districts. Um, you know, the work of PASS is really done and, you know, we talked about evolving technologies and, you know, how do we stay on top of, of what's going on? And, and the way that we do that is through our advisory council. Um, and our advisory council is about 40 individuals, give or take. Um, there's school personnel, uh, school security personnel. Uh, we have nonprofit partners. We have law enforcement, parents, architects, security consultants, and and subject matter experts. And they're all volunteers, you know, who help do the work of pass. And I think it's important to note that, um, you know, while we have product manufacturers involved in pass, everybody takes their company hats off when when we start talking about school safety. And, and these are the subject matter experts that, that help us do this in a product and manufacturer agnostic way. So you won't find um, recommendations for products or man specific products or specific manufacturers anywhere in the documents. So it, it, it's, a, it's a really unique approach. You know, we're a 501c3 uh, nonprofit and we're just dedicated to helping make our schools safer. So as a follow-up then, in your own view, why do you think schools should be paying attention to these guidelines, uh, right? Like what really makes them actionable and what makes them important to consider uh, in your view? Sure. Uh, I, that's a great question. Uh, I think schools should pay attention um, because past tools are, are basically vetted, proven practices that, that work. You know, folks have already uh, used these uh, these practices that that we uh, lay out in the in the guidelines. You know, we have a superintendent uh, that's involved on our advisory council, and and he always says he used the he he adopted the pass approach because it's simple. He understands it, um, and he doesn't want to be the first one to try something. So you get that a lot when you talk to schools. That really resonates with schools. Is you know, it'd be really helpful if if we knew who else was doing this and how it worked. And, and that's really uh, what, what we do with our guidelines and, the, and our checklist tools. I noted this in the intro, but uh, PASS even has, uh, at the very least, soft support from uh, the federal government and its education department, as well as other organizations that have a vested interest at a federal level in school safety. How has that validation really impacted, um, you know, your outreach and how school districts also approach integrating past guidelines? Uh, you know, is there any kind of tangible impact that this has had around validating the scope of your guidelines? Yeah, I, you know, we were we were involved with DHS, Department of Homeland Security, early on uh, when they were looking at developing uh, schoolsafety.gov. I was part of a focus group um, that really talked with them about what we were doing 
So, um, you know, trying to encourage them not to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, uh, because the conversation around safe schools is fragmented enough uh, as it is. But, uh, you know, schoolsafety.gov passes the only non-governmental organization that's referenced in that document. And that document was actually, or that, that website was actually a collaboration between the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, uh, and the Department of Health, Human, oh man, <laughs> Health and Human Services. Pardon me, sorry. Uh, I'm used to saying DHHS and I've got to quit talking in acronyms. Um, hey, uh, no stress, man. The acronym word salad can get tough to maneuver. <laughs> But uh, and, and then subsequent to that, the Department of Justice, uh, through their COPS program, Community Oriented uh, Policing Services, uh, published a list of the 10 essential things schools should do to uh, increase their, their uh, safety and security of their schools. And we were listed as one of those elements. So, you know, it really helps, again, kind of back to the earlier conversation about schools looking at proven practices. You know, we say best practices. I, I like the term proven practices better. It, I think best practices tends to be kind of a tired term. Um, but these are proven practices. And, um, you know, we, we're honored to be uh, included in 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 those uh, resources, as well as other states that like the state of Ohio, that they actually um, did a survey of every public school in their state. Um, they uh, published a report and recommendation uh, that recommended that every public school in the state of Ohio should comply with past tier one guidelines. And they published our checklist tool in the appendix of that document. And you can, you can download that. You can Google it uh, on the internet and, and find it. But uh, I think that just serves to validate and it gives schools a comfort level with what we're doing and, you know, how we've been supported and referenced in, uh, in a lot of these documents. I'd also add that uh, we're referenced in the NFPA 3000 standard, which is uh, the active shooter hostile event response standard uh, that came about in, in 2018. And uh, we're referenced in both uh, chapter five, which is uh, risk assessment and chapter nine, which is facility preparedness. So I think all these things combined, you know, sort of build the build the story around pass and, and, and why schools, you know, should should take a look at. At, uh, at utilizing them. Let's dig into the, the guidelines more specifically. Uh, I want to first get your view on how they uh, evolve before we get into some of the more specific ones. So these guidelines were initially developed in 2015, so about seven years ago. I'm curious what kind of updates or adjustments you've made to the guidelines over the years to uh, reflect you know, new understandings, new school safety best practices, or even just to respond to new social or cultural developments like the pandemic, uh, you know, which obviously completely changed the scope oh, of uh, school safety needs. So walk us through that process of developing these standards and how they stay reactive to the current environment. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and it really kind of speaks to how the organization is set up. We, we talk about the guidelines and, and checklist tools as being living documents. Um, when we published our first edition, um, just a little background, we thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll follow the code cycles. You know, the code cycles, uh, they, they revise uh, International Building Code, NFPA, uh, 
model building codes every three years. And we thought, well, we'll just follow that uh, schedule. And we quickly realized the environment um, and technology was changing way too fast uh, to wait for three years. So currently, you know, you mentioned 2015, it's now 2022, and we currently are working on our sixth edition. So there have been quite a few updates o- over the years. Um, you know, in terms of updates, um, you know, let me, I'll touch on a couple of them. You know, the checklist tool was actually introduced not till the third edition uh, of the guidelines. It was revised in the fourth and the fifth. Um, proven practices, we update constantly. And, you know, we introduced in our fifth edition sections on cybersecurity and, and, and in emerging technologies, you know, sort of to your point of, you know, it's an evolving and what's, what's going on now. Um, you know, all those emerging technologies that we talk about, we eventually work into the guidelines as they're adopted and vetted and proven uh, by school district. Um, you know, our advisory council, I mentioned earlier, you know, all these practitioners, uh, parents, school security folks, law enforcement, you know, there are eyes and ears out there. Uh, they're the ones that, that keep our resources current. Um, you know, we're constantly publishing white papers uh, in between the editions. Uh, you know, you brought up the pandemic, and that's a great example, you know, of things that, that come up in between um, the guidelines. And you might remember um, when that first hit, there was a buzz around thermal imaging, just an example. Um, you know, we were going to take everybody's temperature that came into schools and we were going to measure those by integrating artificial intelligence into cameras or having handheld units or whatever. Um, but there were a couple of different technologies uh, for that uh, particular process. Our subject matter experts pulled together and published a white paper on a topic and we furnished it to uh, a state that was thinking about spending a lot of money on uh, technology they really didn't understand. Uh, the end result was, you know, they ended up pulling back and reevaluating and saving millions of dollars uh, that were then available uh, to spend on more proven technologies. So um, it's, it's constantly evolving to your point. Um, and, you know, we're keeping our finger on the pulse of, of emerging technologies, what's out there and, and our, our advisory council is just absolutely instrumental in, in helping us do that. Now, as for the structure that, you know, I guess informs the development of these strategies, uh, I know that PASS uses a layered and tiered approach, uh, which, you know, basically means in practice, breaking down these strategies into different tiers of focus uh, to define a secure and safe school environment. So, you know, rather than just a holistic plan, it's very much a honed strategy for X need, for Y need, for Z need, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, all of this then, of course, informs a holistic approach. So what I want to do is now uh, for our audience, break down this layered approach and better understand how this helps deter, detect, and delay adversarial behaviors and create safer school environments. So if you could just start by kind of listing out what those layers are and give us a quick elevator pitch on why you even approach it from this perspective. Sure. Um, maybe I'd I, I like to start this conversation and, and you're, you're very articulate in talking about, you know, um, deter, detect and delay adversarial behavior. That's, that's what we're about. You know, these events that happen in schools happen quickly and time is of the essence. So anything we can do to deter, detect and delay 
adversarial behavior is is what you know our our tools are all about. So I, I'd like to start with maybe uh, posing a little visual here. Um, you know, I, I like to use the example of a medieval castle. And when, when I bring up that image, you know, what pops into your head? You know, yeah, moat, big stone walls, tall, um, you know, can folks in the castle see you're coming from a distance? You know, how you can kind of look out into uh, into your environment, kind of early septed principles, if you will, almost, um, you know, being able to see uh, what's approaching uh, you, you know, the moat makes it difficult you know, to get to the large stone wall, which is difficult to breach because it's tall. And, um, you know, there's usually a drawbridge um, access, right? How, how we get people in and out. So, you know, if you think about that sort of a layered approach that's, you know, been around for centuries, you know, I put that in the context of, of the current environment that, you know, layered safety and security works from the outside in. Uh, you know, each layer provide, you know, we provide elements or components um, that deter, detect, and delay adversarial behavior. And as one layer is bypassed, the next layer picks up additional levels. So I, again, I often ask the question of folks when, when you start thinking about school safety and security, wh where, do, where does that start? Where does your mind go? And usually the answer is, well, it's at the front door of the school building. You know, we want to control who gets in we, we want to control who gets in the front door. And what, what I'd point out about the pass approach is in the pass approach, we have five layers and someone would have to have come through three layers of components that deter, detect and delay adversarial behavior before they get to the front door. So, you know, we start with a district wide layer, the five layers. I'll just kind of mention them uh, briefly. Um, it's the largest layer. You know, it really talks about and encompasses the things that we want to uh, approach consistently across our district. So like having a visitor management uh, process, you know, how do how do we let people in and into our building? How do we issue a con or control credentials like keys and cards? Um, you know, those things should be the same across the entire district. Then if you think about how you enter a school, how do you come onto the property? You know, you've come to a driveway, there may be a gate there, um, maybe signs directing you to a parking lot or uh, to the main office. Uh, the point here is we want to start creating an environment where people who are supposed to be there are feel comfortable and people who aren't supposed to be, be there feel a little uncomfortable. So then you come to a parking lot perimeter, the next layer, um, and there may be a guardhouse there, there may be a gate, there may be more signs, there may be a camera, uh, that direct folks to, you know, may say something like, you know, please check in at the main office or check in at the security office. So we're starting to send that message. Hey, you know, we're paying attention here. Um, we, we see you. We know you're here. Uh, those, those kind of messages. Then you come to the building. Um, and that's really the fourth layer, which is, you know, how do we get people into the, into the building or how do people get into the building? They come into a secure vestibule. They have to be buzzed into that uh, where, you know, they're run through a visitor management system, says, who, who are you? Why are you here? Who are you here to see? Uh, those kind of processes before you finally get into the interior of the building, which is the last layer of protection. 
um, in the past guidelines, and that's you know classrooms and offices and uh, gymnasiums and lunchrooms and libraries. So all those uh, proven practices around each component are then kind of tiered. So uh, from basic uh, to more advanced, kind of one, one through four is the way they're set up in the guidelines. So it's a key element uh, to our past approach, you know, being able to be specific to a given school and their particular risk profile so that they can actually adopt and develop and implement plans that are effective and appropriate to their environment. Um, you know, it's not a peanut butter spread. You know, we talk about a lot of times you hear the conversation, well, I, I, I visited a school and this is what I saw. That's fine. Uh, you know, if you've seen one school, you've seen one school. They're all different. So we have to be able to have an approach and a, and a tool that has the flexibility to adapt to all those different risk profiles and situations. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I find it to be important that PASS has been able to develop a strategy that is so focused, but also, you know, that can inform strategies based on its other layers, right? So I'm sure that while each layer has its own, um, you know, focused strategy and, uh, you know, it has its own approach to creating uh, its own strategies for the parking lot, the classroom, you know, the front office, right? Um, it's important to also intersect these and for, you know, having one layer learn from the other. And it creates that ecosystem, you know, where um, perspectives from one approach may apply to the other and can apply to all layers, of course, with some tweaks. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through that synergy and uh, if it exists in the way I just described it, how does it you know, support each layer and how does it create a more holistic approach to school safety? Yeah, I think that that kind of leads to the conversation around components um, and what are those components. And that's, that's really what ties the layers together. Um, you know, we have uh, the seven components that we talk about consistently, those elements that deter, detect, and delay adversarial behavior um, are, you know, that they're key. Um, so, you know, do would you like to get into the conversation around components here, Daniel? Would that be appropriate? Yes, absolutely. Let's go ahead and uh, jump in. So if you want to go ahead and lay down some of those specific components of safety and security that PASS recommends, uh, so we can, you know, get specific there, but then also tie that into the larger ecosystem and how you see those components um, interacting within their layers, uh, but then also within the larger ecosystem. Sure. Um, well, the, the, the components we talk about in each one of the five layers, the, the first two are the, the largest and the most important, and those are policies and procedures and people roles and training. Um, those two uh, components account for nearly half of the of the document of the guidelines document, you know, um, and and you hear other organizations like Safe and Sound Schools talk about training and preparing and practicing, um, and, and and security experts will tell you that having vigilant staff and students, you know, who are empowered to act, are you know, it's the most effective deterrent to adversarial acts and. You know, those two components uh, often have little or no costs associated with them. So when you think about it, um, 
the two most important components <laughs> that are the largest part of the guidelines and what we're talking about have little or no costs associated with them. Um, that's in, you know, that's incredible. So when we hear schools talking about why well, we can't afford this, the two most important things they can do uh, have little, uh, you know, to no cost associated with them. Uh, the balance of the components are, are, are architectural. So looking at how we design our schools um, using SEPTED principles, considering design, you know, different design elements like, you know, wh where do we place our door lights? You know, how wide are they? How big are they? Um, and even sharing building information. So with the advent of Revit and some of the electronic technologies out there that contain building information, we can share that information uh, with emergency responders. Um, communication is, is a component that we talk about, you know, how we communicate internally and externally uh, with parents, with emergency responders, and, and, and even with the community. Um, and we point out the difference between, you know, everyday communication, uh, the day-to-day -day stuff uh, versus emergency communication, which are, are, are two very different types of, of communication and have very different requirements. Um, access control is another component, you know, we touched on that a little bit. How do we control who gets into the building, when they get into the building, where they can go? Uh, video surveillance is another one, you know, interior and exterior. What, what do we want to watch? Uh, Alarms and detection is the last one. And, you know, we'd want alarms, you know, you, you, you hear a, a, a siren going off at a, a store if you're in a store and it's, it's sort of local there. And what we want to happen in schools is when something goes into alarm, we want that to trigger some sort of a response that addresses uh, what's going on. So each one of the, that's what ties our layers together, Daniel, to your question is that we talk about these different components in each and every one of the layers. Um, there are policies and procedures that we wanna talk about on a district-wide basis. And we also have different policies and procedures in an elementary school than we have in a, in a middle school or in a high school. Um, so those are, those are the really sort of the common thread that, that run throughout the, the guidelines tools that, that tie those layers together. Does, does that make sense? No, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you giving us that breakdown of, uh, again, how the various solutions and systems interact to create uh, a unique set of solutions for each problem, but also a communicative and synergistic set of guidelines, right? Uh, so speaking of uh, the guidelines that pass, promotes, recommends, uh, also lay out a four-step process that helps function as a roadmap on um, how to use them when formulating a comprehensive security plan. So I'm curious if um, you, know, you could walk us through those four-step processes and how they help inform uh, a more useful uh, sort of in-the-moment execution of these guidelines. Walk us through your thoughts. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, it's a four-step process and it starts with forming a team. Um, and we suggest that uh, you start simple, maybe with just four or five individuals. So a school administrator, a security director, an emergency responder, you know, someone from either police, fire or EMS, IT director, because uh, as, as uh, most of us know, if, if uh, 
systems reside on a computer in a school district. If the IT director's not on board, nothing happens. Um, and then maybe a security consultant. And then, you know, building the team out from there, you know, as the plans develop, um, you know, gets broader and broader. You want to bring in students. You want to bring in, you know, folks from the school district. You want to bring in community members and parents and, um, you know, have a, you have a development team where you start bringing in architects and um, and then you have the whole technology IT side of things. So um, and, and mileage varies there, too, because you have uh, rural districts uh, that may or may not have a security director. A lot of times the person you want to talk to is the superintendent of the district. Larger school districts, those guys, you know, those those people are pretty hard to get to uh, because they have security directors and, and they have other folks that are responsible for that. Um, you know, the next step, step two, is completing a risk assessment. And, you know, these are available from a number of, of uh, uh, resources, uh, including, you know, emergency responder, uh, Department of Homeland Security, local subject matter experts, security consultants. There's there's a lot of folks that can help you with a risk assessment or help schools with a risk assessment. Um, but I think when we talk about risk assessment, Daniel, I think the important thing is there's three terms that sort of get used interchangeably when we're talking about risk. Risk, threat, and vulnerability all kind of get used interchangeably. Risk assessments are very different than vulnerability assessments. Um, and, you know, threats are what we're trying to protect against. Vulnerabilities are uh, gaps in that protection against the threats. And risk is, is, is where those two intersect. So I think it's really important to understand the difference between uh, you know, risk, risk, threat, and vulnerability uh, assessments. Um, third step after you've after the risk assessment is complete is to really complete building assessments using the checklist tool. Uh, it walks you through the proven practices layer by layer. Um, uh, it's it's an interactive tool. You can load it on your laptop and and take it out in the field with you, um, and and do your building assessments. But that really helps schools. Um, understand their current state and also, um, you know, what options are out there to help them maybe improve. I think even more importantly than that, it, it engages the schools in the process. It engages those folks in thinking about these different things um, and these different proven practices that are out there. Um, and then after, after the building assessments are done, you know, certainly the fourth step and last but not least is formulate your plans and and start building budgets based on you know your risk assessment and building assessments and and uh, you know what you want your plan to look like yeah and you know i think something else that's important to remember is that as we map out these strategies it's so important for the educators and the administrators to place the student at the center of these strategies right naturally there's uh, some behind the scenes work and uh, you know safety strategies that doesn't involve the day-to-day -day safety of the student or the day-to-day -day, you know operations of the student as they go through the day-to-day -day of their studies uh, but there are also uh, layers that um, you know create a safe and secure school environment that 
you know, these layers can create touch points uh, with students that are more visible. So I'm curious if you can walk us through how the past guidelines place the students, um, you know, relationship with the school, with peers, with staff, and their education journey, um, how that intersects with the guidelines themselves, and what your strategies are for the more visible elements of those strategies. Sure. I, I mean, high level, we we talk about um, you know the mental health of, of of students, and and that is no doubt uh, highly highly important uh, in in having a, a safe learning environment. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, empowering students to act, um, doing you know practicing. Um, lockdown drills, you know, what, whatever it is, uh, shelter, evade, defend, care uh, practice about, you know, having students understand what their roles are and their responsibilities when things happen. Um, so, you know, uh, we don't, um, we look at the, the safe schools conversation, the broad, the, the, the big conversation as, as being sort of uh, three, three distinct swim lanes uh, and mental health is, is certainly one of those, but uh, yeah, keeping the students at the center of the conversation. That's what, that's what we're about. You know, we want the students to feel safe. There are studies that prove our students uh, and our children's learning improves when they feel safe. So it's about providing uh, that level of safety and security, letting them know it's there, but yet not making it obtrusive, um, you know, and, and, and visual. So they look at something and they think, oh, geez, I should be scared when I'm in here or, you know, it, that causes me to, to worry. We, we don't want to we don't want to encourage that. In the pitch to my last question, I was mentioning some more visible aspects of uh, school safety. Can you walk us through uh, how PASS recommends and approaches uh, implementing new staff into schools in a way that keeps the students' mental health and also that relationship they have with their learning environment and their staff and peers in mind. Um, can you go and speak more specifically about, uh, you know, how any professionals, counselors, mental health professionals that are there to uh, support students, as well as even law enforcement, if they have a more visible presence at school, uh, walk through how PASS approaches and recommends walking through and maneuvering that more visible side of the staff presence itself in school safety. Yeah, and and that's a that's a good question, and it really kind of leads to I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to the to the three swim lane conversation uh, that I that I started or a comment that I made a minute ago, you know that we we look at the the safe schools conversation as having three distinct swim lanes. We have the the mental health swim lane, um, you know, uh, securing the environment is sort of the second swim lane, which is where we focus. And then response and recovery is the third. So, um, you know, we focus on the security and technologies, policies and procedures and, and, and training to implement those, those things, to uh, implement them successfully. Um, you know, there aren't clear lines between what we do um, and, and those other two uh, adjacent spaces. So, um, you know, when you think about the swim, lane analogy. When you're swimming in a lane, the waves from your lane sort of leak out in, into other lanes. And, and that's that's really sort of a, a visual that makes sense to me 
about how we interact with um, organizations like Safe and Sound Schools. Um, you know, when we are um, talking about uh, mental health issues, a lot of what we do can point to mental health issues. For example, um, you know, we might capture someone being bullied, um, for example, uh, on a camera. That could point to a mental health issue. What we do is uh, refer, um, we, we, our go-to people on mental health issues is safe and sound schools, no, no doubt. Um, when we get into response and recovery, um, you know, we have things in the guidelines that respond to events, certainly. A lockdown drill is a good example of that. You know, that's a response to something that's happening in the school. Um, same with uh, training around shelter, evade, defend, care, which is, you know, when something goes on, shelter, figure out what's going on. Um, uh, we don't um, support uh, running being the first response to, to, to an event is to, to shelter, use your senses, figure out what's going on, uh, and then uh, respond accordingly. Um, evade if you can, uh, defend if you have to, and then care uh, for, for those who, who may need it uh, following the event. But really the heavy lifting on the response and recovery, again, kind of uh, falls into the safe schools um, area of expertise in NFPA 3000 to talk about, you know, how do you set up an incident command system and how do you uh, run a, a reunification program and things like that. So um, Safe and Sound Schools gets into school resource officers and, and you know, the, the benefits of, of having good uh, school resource officers uh, on, on staff. Um, we talk a little bit about, to your, to your earlier uh, point about, you know, bringing uh, new staff in. You think about school environment, I think somewhere close to 20% of teachers in a school building on a given day are substitutes. Do they know what the lockdown policy is? Do they know what to do in the event of an emergency? How do we train those folks? So, you know, I, I think that the more you talk about it and the more you think about it, um, the more overlap there is between what we do and what everybody else does, which is why I think it's important to have that larger conversation and not just, you know, what we're doing isn't the most important thing. It's an important thing. Um, and what Safe and Sound is doing and, and what NFPA 3000 is doing are, are, are equally important. Does that, does that make sense? No, yeah, definitely. Uh, I appreciate you breaking that down for us. And again, you know, as schools implement past guidelines, it's going to be critical to understand the material day-to-day -day impact on students, uh, you know, of these new, more visible processes, but also the more invisible ones that play a more background, under-the-hood role. Uh, they also have an impact on the day-to-day -day of students. Um, like you mentioned, if a substitute teacher doesn't know their way around school safety protocols, I'm sure that's going to be a rather confusing as a situation for students if indeed there is an issue. And maybe the students know more about the guidelines than the substitute teacher even does at that point. Um, you know, doesn't create a lot of trust in that environment, right? So anything we can do to create a more, uh, excuse me, more of a semblance of, um, you know, having an ecosystem of professionals that put the student 
front of mind uh, and you know uh, have resources available for all parties that creates a safe school environment and making sure that they have what they need, you know, I think that's going to be critical, that entire relationship. So Mark, hey, thank you so much for your perspectives today. It's been so great. Um, as we wrap up, I want to make sure we end on a more actionable note here. So um, you know, what are some, let's say, one or two steps that you would like to see school leaders do this year to ensure school safety and security for their school communities? Walk us through those immediately actionable thoughts that they can take on now and make a priority this year. Yeah, I, 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 again, you know, great, great uh, segue. Um, you know, I, I think I know you asked for two. I probably have three. Um, I, you know, I would encourage schools to work to work to the left of X, um, you know, X being, you know, an event that we don't want to happen, you know, get out in front of it, uh, plan, prepare and practice, you know, don't fall into the thinking that it can't happen here or we can't afford it or um, that your schools will feel like prisons. Um, secondly, um, I, I encourage them to take a comprehensive approach to safety and security and not fall for gimmicks that appear to be, you know, sort of inexpensive, easy uh, solutions and, you know, like barricade devices that, that we've been um, talking about now for years um, that have really dangerous unintended consequences and violate federal law. So build, the, build that foundation uh, because without a firm foundation, uh, and that's why policies and procedures are are so important because they're foundational uh, that you you build your plan on that. And and lastly, I'd encourage them, you know, if you haven't downloaded the guidelines and checklists, do it now. Um, you know, there's not a more comprehensive uh, and complete resource out there out there. You know, it's 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 a roadmap of proven practices that are assembled and organized, you know, by folks who are product and manufacturer agnostic and whose only mission is, you know, is really to um, help schools navigate the complexity and, and have effective uh, and appropriate solutions for their schools. So I know that was three, Daniel. Sorry about that. No, hey, more recommendations are good. Definitely not going to complain about that uh, or about getting more actionable insights from you. Mark, hey, thank you so much for your time and perspectives on the podcast. Uh, any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with before we close? Yeah, um, certainly. Thank, thanks, Daniel, and thanks to Raptor for sponsoring the event and, and, and for their support of PASS and, and their dedication to developing tools that, that make our schools safer. It's, it's, it's imperative. You know, I'm incredibly thankful for our PASS organization, uh, our advisory council, and, and all the partner organizations whose vision and values align with ours and who help us spread the word about PASS and our, our simple and effective approach to school uh, safety. You know, it's been a, a remarkable journey for me and for most of us in PASS, and it's been full of ups and downs, as, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm humbled every day uh, by the dedication of other safe schools advocates, safe and sound schools, the past team, but also those who serve in our schools. Uh, they are the first responders when adversarial events happen and, and they happen every day. So as I mentioned, you know, we know our children's learning improves when they feel safe. And our goal is to provide those tools that, that help make schools safer so that 
the students can learn and the teachers can teach and the parents don't worry. So thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here today, Daniel. And thanks for your insightful uh, questions and conversation. No, Mark, all the thanks go to you. Thank you again for uh, giving us your insights into the program, uh, giving us your perspectives again on how PASS is developing its guidelines, how it stays on top of uh, frequent changes to school safety and the larger environment and ecosystem, and how you're you know, working to build out those guidelines in a reactionary way to the current environment, uh, as well as offering some steps for implementing them more actionably. So. Thank you again. I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. So thank you again to our guest today. Uh, we've been chatting again with Mr. Mark Williams. Mark is again board chairman of the Partner Alliance for Safer Schools. Uh, Mark, if folks want to find out more about PASS, maybe they want to get in touch or source some resources. How can they get in touch? Where can they learn more? They can learn more uh, by reaching out to our website, which is www.pass.com k12.org. Um, you can uh, contact us through that. Um, my email address is very simple. It's mwilliams at passk12.org, and I'm happy to receive your, your emails. So thank you. Fantastic. Mark, thanks again for your time. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. Take care, Daniel. And thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of School Safety Today, a Raptor Technologies podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want some previous conversations or you want to follow up on any of the important touch points that we broke down today on PASS, make sure that you're heading to our website, raptortech.com. We have plenty of useful resources as well as other pieces of content on the site. You can also subscribe to School Safety Today on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Again, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of School Safety Today.